So, if, as I said, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the text, and then after that, we will, uh, we'll, we'll jump in. So, if you can, stand with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhand ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, this is the unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that uh, this morning as we mine the depths of the goodness of the gospel, that you would cause us to have eyes to see and minds um, and ability to think deeply and understand this amazing good news. Help me, please, Lord. There's no way that I can do this without you. Fill me, Spirit, so that I teach um, all things that are true. Um, help me say all the things that are most helpful this morning. We love you, Lord, and we are absolutely dependent upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll, I'll do a quick recap. I've been doing this every week, and I'm going to start trying to do this less every time, just so you kind of know what's going on. But we're in 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter written by Paul to the Corinthians. Um, the second letter was 1 Corinthians, which we did a while back when we were going through Acts. And here we are uh, going through 2 Corinthians. Um, the letter of 2 Corinthians has three main sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 7, where Paul, uh, because there's been a situation going on there, he's had to defend his um, apostleship and really try to help them see the, the Corinthians, their error. And so in chapters 1 through 7, he's trying to reconcile with them because he had written a letter, the third letter, called the severe letter, um, really giving it uh, to them, letting them know that what they had done was wrong, believing false apostles, etc. And so he had written a severe letter, and then he wrote this next letter, which we're reading, 2 Corinthians, to kind of, before he got there, uh, give them a little bit of like um, comfort so that whenever he came and saw them in person, they weren't going to be so upset. Uh, and so he's reconciling with them in this letter uh, because he's going to go see them. And he's also defending his apostolic position, which is where we're kind of in the middle of. It's in chapters 1 through 7. Once he gets to chapters 8 and 9, he talks about the importance of generosity. And then he closes in 10 through 13 with, with final, um, final challenges. But we're still, as I said, in chapters 1 through 7. And as we've been going through it, uh, he, as in, in the very beginning of, of 2 Corinthians 1, he offers comfort to them, and as he offers comfort, that after that, he talks about the importance of reconciliation in the next section. After that, of course, if you're going to reconcile, you need to forgive, so he talks about the need of forgiveness, and then he starts defending his apostolic position, and as he's doing that, we saw what are some of the needs of competent ministers, and he looks at himself, and as he's talking about being a competent minister of the new gospel, of the new covenant of the gospel, he talks about distinct qualities of the new covenant, which is what we looked at last week, what are distinct qualities of the new covenant, and then today, he's going to launch into 4, 1 through 6, which I, the title of the sermon is The Greatest News 
of the good news. So uh, whenever we pr- prepare sermons, I, I map it out, and this, this time we, I mapped out all 22 weeks, and uh, I, uh, we have a little board, and we have a, uh, something up in the cloud that we share on some kind of pr- sheets file or whatever it is, and so you know, I map out the, the weeks, and I, I, I get first dibs because I mapped it out. So I go through, and I'm like, ooh, I want 4, 1 through 6. FUD, and so I, I claimed 4, 1 through 6 a long time ago. I've been looking forward to this sermon really the whole time. Once I'm done with this, I feel good. You know, the rest of the book, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy, but I've just been looking forward to this one for a long time. I signed my name on this one first. I signed up, actually, as Chris said uh, beforehand, on most of the good ones in 2 Corinthians because like, ooh, yeah, I like that one, and I like that one. And I like that one, and, and I like that one. So at, by the end, I left him uh, a couple. But I forgot um, 4, 7 through 18, which Chris saw. And I was like, man, I forgot the way to glory. So he's got that. Uh, but anyway, um, I've been looking forward to 4, 1 through 6 because it's one of my favorite texts in all of Second Corinthians. And the reason why is, is because I've read this book here called God is the Gospel by John Piper. And it's impossible, for me at least, to basically have listened to almost every sermon and read every book by John Piper whenever I do 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 and not have God as the gospel in my mind. So it's impossible. So um, as we're looking at this particular sermon, we're, we're kind of peeping over the shoulders of John Piper and, and as we go through this because there's, there's no way to exposit this text without his influence because I've basically read everything he's ever written and listened to everything he's ever done. And he talks about... 4, 6, and 4, 4 um, all the time. And basically this entire book is an exposition of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 6. I would recommend you, you read this because I'm not going to say it like him. Um, and he's going to say it infinitely better than I would. And Paul is going to say it infinitely better than either one of us would. So that's where we are today. So as he's been talking about the gospel today in 4, 1 through 6, he's going to literally talk about what is the greatest news of the good news, because there's a lot of things about the good news that are good. But here he's going to talk about the greatest news of the good news. Now, um, Paul is obviously way better than, than Piper, right? Because he's inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. But what I want us to look at as we're looking through this is um, when we're looking at the greatest news, here's kind of my little outline. Don't, don't put it on the screen, but here's, here's a little outline of what we're going to do. The first thing we're going to talk about is the greatest news of the good news. What is exactly the greatest news of the good news? That's the first thing. The second thing we're going to talk about is what people need for the greatest news of the good news to happen. What do they need for the greatest news of the good news to happen to them? What is it? Um, The third thing is um, how that need is met. We're going to talk about number two, what it is that they need. And then the third one is, well, then, okay, if that's what they need, how does that happen? How does it actually happen? And the fourth thing is, what can you do? What can you do? So that's the order of what we're going with. Um, And so the first thing is the greatest news of the good news. And as I said, um, the best way, I think, to look at this text is to take verse 4 and verse 6. Take those two things because they are almost stated exactly alike. um, But there's one stated negatively and one stated positively. So in verse 4, it talks about what Satan keeps um, unbelievers from seeing, and then he says what he keeps them from seeing is Jesus, basically. And in verse 6, he says, and this is what believers get to see, and it's Jesus. So it's the same thing in 4 and through 6. So what we're going to do is take verse 4 and 6 and kind of lay them on top of each other and let all of the truth of 4 and 6 pour out to us and see. And that gives us, well, this is the greatest news of all the good news there is. You'll see what I'm saying. First, 
Um, this is how Piper uh, sets up what, what you would say, what is the greatest news? He says this, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness. So think about it. Heaven, what we think of in our, in our concepts of heaven. If you could have heaven with no sickness, all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted, no human conflict ever again, no natural disasters ever again on earth. If, if, could you be satisfied with that heaven, with all those things, if Christ was not there? Could you be satisfied with that if Christ is not there? Are we the kind of people that can make statements like this in the scriptures. Moses in Exodus 32 said, God, please show me your glory. Or in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire into his temple. Or have we ever talked like this? Psalm 63, 1 through 4. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Which takes us back to the critical question that every generation has to ask. If we can take all those things that we think make up heaven and not have Jesus, then we've missed the whole point. The greatest, news in the, good, the greatest news of all the good news is not that we get all of those things one day in heaven. The greatest news of the good news is all these things that these writers in the Old Testament are saying, which is when I get to wherever heaven is, the best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there, and not just that he's there, but I get him. I get Jesus, in a sense. And so here's what's not the gospel. Um, this cup right here uh, is a, one of those make-it-yourself kind of cups where you, you paint on it. Uh, and one day, really clumsily, I was standing at the top of the stairs, and I dropped it. And it fell all the way down the stairs, and then it broke and shattered into a thousand pieces. It happened a, lot, a while ago, but this was when Karis' feet were this size. And Karis' feet are nowhere near this size anymore. You know, they're like this big. Um, and so, uh, and whenever it broke, uh, she, Karis was... Um, this was 2006, so Karis was very, very young at the time, and her sister, J.C., saw it and just exploded into tears, right? And I, I have no clue how to do anything, right? And so I was like, I can put it back together. And so um, I, I did the best I could, right? I'm not very smart at the time, at, even now. So I grabbed Gorilla Glue, which, you know, is the brown glue everywhere, and just kind of stuck it back together, and there it is. And so now it sits on my desk, and it has, it's a pen holder. That's all I can do with it, right? It's a pen holder. Well, this is not the gospel, okay? Sometimes you've heard the gospel say that you were shattered into a thousand pieces, and God took you, and piece by piece, he put you back together again. That's not the gospel, because that assumes that we were actually whole before. We weren't whole before. We were an absolute mess forever. It's not like everything was great, and then all of a sudden we were broken, it's that we were never, ever put together. The gospel is not that at all. It's not that God finally put you back together to the state you were. You can kind of, in a sense, make a little bit of an argument with Adam, but I'm not talking about Adam, we're talking about you, right? That's not the gospel. Or maybe you've heard this. Um, and this is the, uh, the grabbing of the life preserver. You were out in the lake or far off in the ocean, and you're like going down, and all of a sudden 
God comes up and he throws you the life preserver and just grab it or you're going to die. And like, okay, you reach up and you grab it and he pulls you out and God saved you. That's not it either, right? Because you were dead. Dead people can't move arms and grab life preservers. A better scenario is that you actually drowned and you went all the way down to the bottom of the ocean and then he grabbed you off the bottom of the ocean, resuscitated you and brought you back to life because dead people don't grab life preservers. Neither one of those are the gospel and they both diminish what is um, the greatest parts of the good news. So the final good of the gospel is not those kinds of things where the coffee cup's broken or the life preserver and finally you just kind of get free from yourself or you get put back together. We like to think those are the greatest parts of the gospel, but they're not. So the final good or the greatest news of the gospel isn't just that you get saved or just that you get eternal life or just that you get the the guilt pains of sin are taken away, or just that now you're finally forgiven, or just that you finally get to go to heaven, or just that you don't have to go to hell anymore, or just that there's one day going to be no physical suffering in the world. All of those things are good, but they're all secondary beneficiaries of the gospel. They're all secondary, and those things are amazing. Those things are, those things are preached and taught each week from the Bible. I do it, right? But those aren't the final greatest good of the gospel. And all those things are glorious. The final greatest good, as Piper says, the gospel purchased many promises and good gifts like those things I just listed, from the spiritual to the material, yet God himself is the most ultimate good promised in the gospel. The greatest news of the good news is that we get God. Not that we get our sins forgiven. Not that we don't have to go to hell. Not that we get to go to heaven. Not that one day there won't be cancer. All those things are great. But that's not the final good. The final good is that one day you get finally the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and you'll see it here. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So here's what believers get to see. Blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, here it is, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we get as believers, the final good of all things as believers, is that we get to finally see the light of the gospel, of the glory, there it is, of Christ. We get to see forever and enjoy forever with ever-increasing infinite joy the glory of Jesus. Forever. Never-ending. How can that happen? How can there be a day where all of a sudden you haven't experienced all the joy of God? Because we're finite, and he's infinite, and the infinite is able to every single day make mercies new. Every single day, make your joy increase. The finite will never be able to fully comprehend with joy the infinite. And so he's able to, for infinity forever, help us every day enjoy him even more. Enjoy seeing and experiencing and being part and savoring the glory of God. Same thing as in verse 6. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts, here it is, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the final good of all the gospel, that we get to see and savor and experience and treasure the glory of Jesus Christ forever. All of those other things I listed are great things, but the final good, the final good is this, that we get to have the light of the, 
gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 4, or the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 6. So the centerpiece, the light, or the centerpiece of all of the gospel is the glory of Christ shining out to us. It's so important for us to understand because when I said before, uh, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ does not mean forgiveness of sin, being justified, going to heaven, going to, not going to hell, not feeling guilty anymore, not suffering anymore, taking God's wrath away from you, being free from sin, uh, final deliverance from the world of all sickness and pain. As I said, all those things are good, but if those were the final goods, the gospel would be thoroughly man-centered, thoroughly man-centered. But the gospel is thoroughly God-centered. And so the, the best, most important thing is that we enjoy his glory. And then all these secondary beneficiaries, which are man-centric, no doubt, are now where our sin is forgiven. Now the wrath of God is removed off of us. Now we don't have to go to hell. Now we get to go to heaven. And those things are great. We should preach those things. I'm not diminishing those things at all. I'm just saying they're secondary beneficiaries of the gospel for us. The final good is that we get God. Therefore, the gospel is thoroughly God-centered, not thoroughly man-centered. And that's why verse 5, when he says, what is it that we proclaim? It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as as Lord. Because the gospel is thoroughly man-centered, we should be as well. We don't proclaim ourselves and our forgiveness of sin. We don't proclaim ourselves and our escape from hell. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Therefore, his glory is the most important thing. That makes the final good of the gospel not man-centered, but God-centered. And so, to finish up, this is, uh, this is point number one. I don't know if you ever put it up. Number one is, um, when we're talking about uh, the greatest news of the good news, God is the gospel. The greatest gift, number one, the greatest gift that God can give us in the gospel is himself. The greatest thing that God could ever give us is the gift of himself. That's true of no one else. <laughs> I can't say to someone, the greatest gift I give you is the gift of myself. That's a pretty, that's a pretty terrible gift, bud. Um, no one can say that. Only God can say that. What better thing could God give to us other than himself? Things that have been created, those things pale in comparison to himself because he's the creator, not created. And so, number one that we're looking at is the greatest news of the good news is this, that God is the gospel. Think of it. Whenever you get saved, whenever I get saved, whenever all of us come to know Christ, we get God. That's why he says, God is the gospel. God is the good news. The greatest news of everything is that we get to see and experience and savor, as he says in verses 4 and 6, the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I read those Old Testament passages is because this is how your heart should talk. This is how your heart should emote. This is how you should feel. If you truly believe that the greatest thing about the gospel is God, then you say, show me your glory, God. You say, one thing that I have asked the Lord that I have seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life so I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Or Psalm 63, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul pants for, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. These are the things that we that we would want. Even now. It's not like one day in heaven I'll finally have those sanctified desires and I'll want Jesus. There should be 
vestiges of those things building now in our hearts to say, I just want to see and experience your glory now, Christ. So if that's not happening with you, you are experiencing the secondary beneficiaries of the gospel uh, as a higher degree of pleasure more than the primary. Ask the Lord to change your desires. God, I'm so happy that I'm forgiveness of sin. I'm so happy that you've removed your wrath from me. I'm so happy I'm going to go to heaven instead of hell. But more than anything, Lord, help me want to enjoy, seek, and savor your glory more than anything else. That's the greatest news of the good news. That's the greatest news of the good news. So, that was number one. Number two, what people need for the greatest news of the good news to happen. What is it that people need then? If somebody's going to finally experience that, what do they need? So, whenever I had uh, just finished college, back in 1999, um, there was a movie that came out, which really, uh, there's, there's some movies when they come out, they're just kind of like, okay, that was whatever. And there's some movies that come out to where after that movie's made, then all kinds of culture is shaped by it. Like, probably the bil- biggest illustration is Star Wars, right? After Star Wars came out, then... Culture was totally shaped after that. You, you have people quoting Luke, I am your father all the time. Movies put in lines from Star Wars, etc. Well, another one in that same kind of vein, not exactly like Star Wars as dominating as Star Wars, but uh, definitely a culture-shaping movie was The Matrix in 1999. As a matter of fact, the first time I ever saw it, I totally didn't understand it. I walked out of the thing. I walked right back into the line and bought another ticket and went and, went and watched it immediately again just so I could finally try to understand what, what it meant. Um, it's not necessarily the most uh, Christ-like movie, but it, if all movies are just retellings of the greatest story, which is Jesus, and that's what The Matrix is. So it just retells Jesus' story, but, you know, in a really kind of pagan way with technology. But here's, here's the point, right? Um, in The Matrix, if you've never seen it, I'm just going to kind of give you a quick summary because it brings out really what, when I say what people need, I'm illustrating it with The Matrix. I've always wanted to do this. All right. In the movie... Uh, the Matrix, AI has taken over. AI has taken over the whole world. Everything's run by AI. All things are run by computers. But uh, for computers to run, um, they need a power source. You can't just take a glass of water and throw it on it and say, hey, we win. Um, but so AI, they all need a computers. They need a power source, power source so they'll never run out of power. So the computers have actually tried to, they figured out in the Matrix in the future how to have everlasting power, and that is harvesting humans as their battery source. So they, they get humans, they stick them in this kind of like egg thing, and they hook up machines to them, and they pull pa- battery from them until the human dies. They flush them down, they put another one in there, and just for the whole 80 years that a human's alive, or whatever it is, they're harvesting them for their power so AI can rule the world. And so, unbeknownst to the humans, their entire life is spent asleep in this kind of like egg thing where their body's being used for power uh, as energy. And so as they're asleep by... Uh, the computers, um, they're always, as all humans, are always kind of craving freedom. Like we all have something inside of us that's craving freedom. That's something that they're tapping into. That's kind of general revelation that we all know. Um, and so in order to trick them to think that they don't need this freedom, in order the, the AI tricks them, they insert something into their head that makes them think they're in this fake world called the matrix. And so they live in what's known as the fake world as the matrix so that they, they will stay content and not try to seek freedom so the AI can keep pulling power from them. So they stick them into this fake world mentally, uh, and they, as they're in this fake world, this fake world called the matrix, it's just like Earth, it's filled with all of uh, every sinful desire a human could ever want, right? It's just whatever you want, it's basically Earth now. 
Um, and so, but it's all fake. So here's the thing. In extremely rare times, sometimes these humans figure out inside this little thing, they figure out that they're actually in the matrix and they're not in what's quote unquote the real world. And when that happens, the computer realizes that's the case and just kind of flushes them out of their little egg and they go and they just die, right? Well, uh, in this particular movie, after they're flushed down this little toilet of sorts and the computer can just get another body for power, right? Uh, well, when this happens, uh, there's actually some humans that are alive in the real world. So when you're flushed down, these real humans come and they grab this guy, the, the hero uh, after he's been flushed down, Neo, who's Keanu Reeves, Keanu, everyone to this side of the bus, that guy. And so that's a whole other movie. So they grab Neo and they pull him and they put him in this room and he's asleep and then he wakes up and he starts looking at him and he's like, ah, ah, my eyes hurt, my eyes hurt. They burn. And then Morpheus looks at him and says, that's because you've never used them. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what's going on with the unbeliever. They have eyes, but they've literally never used them before. They've been in a fake world experiencing fake things, but they've never actually had their eyes really see something before. And so what people need, this is number two, what people need for the greatest news of them to happen, what they need is they need eyes. They need for them, uh, their eyes to actually finally see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 4 as it says, In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They have eyes, but they've never used them before. And what they need is to finally be able to use their eyes to see the glory of God. Now here, let's not mistake this, okay? The glory of God, it doesn't mean the glory of God's not shining. The glory of God is always shining. Regardless of whether man sees it or not, they've been blinded to see it, but it doesn't mean that it's not shining. It's always shining. It's always shining bright. God's glory is always shining because it has never ceased to exist. It has always existed. It's always happening, and it's some men are seeing it, and some men are not seeing it. And what causes them to see it, obviously, is the Lord. The Lord quickens their heart, and finally they see it. But when they see it, they always choose it. Because the Lord has regenerated their hearts to see it. But the reason why people don't choose Christ is because they don't see the glory. They don't see the glory. And what people need is eyes to see the glory. That's what needs to happen. Piper says it this way. The reason some of you may not be enjoying the beauty of Christ is that you're blind to see it because Satan is conspiring with your unbelief. It says that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's conspiring with our unbelief to keep the veil over our face. This is what Paul was talking about last chapter. The veil still over our face. And so when people hear the gospel, when their eyes are blind, when people hear the gospel and they think that that sounds boring or they think that uh, that just sounds dreadfully terrible, I don't get to do what I want anymore, that's because the veil's still over their eyes. Satan is still keeping them blind. Satan is evil. As it says, the God of this world is keeping them from seeing. He's evil. He doesn't want us to see the glory of God. This has not happened. Ephesians 1, chapter 15 through 18. This has not happened to them. Ephesians 1. For this reason, because 
I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus towards the love of the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Here it is. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's what he wants them to see. Because if you, if you see the glory, then you'll see the greatest thing about, about the good news. That you may know what is the hope to which you is called and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. And so that's what needs to happen is they need uh, their eyes to finally see. Piper says, what was wrong to blindness is glory. To be lost, to be perishing is to be blind to glory. We are dealing with people who are just blind to glory. They can see glory in football. They can see these echoes and the glory in the stars. They see echoes of the glory in their kids. They see echoes of the glory in art, echoes of the glory all over. But when you present to them the greatest glory, haze goes over their eyes, just nothing. It's just nothing. No sweetness, no beauty, no love, no joy, no treasuring, no satisfaction, just blank or even worse than blank. They don't have eyes to see. So what needs to happen is they need eyes. If this glory is always shining bright and they never see it, how can they see it? That's what leads us into number three. How can they see it? If the, what they need is eyes, how can they finally have eyes to see? That's what point number three is. It's right there in verse six. For God, who said, let's not miss any of this, right? Who's saying it? God. Not us. We're not pulling ourselves by our bootstraps to finally see. The only way this happens is the first few verses of verse 6. For God, who said. So God has to speak salvifically towards us. And when he does, this is what he says. Let light shine out of darkness. And then it shines into our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ and the faith of Christ Jesus. And so what's Paul doing here when he says how that need is met? God has to speak and he speaks to the heart of an unbeliever and he declares over them, let light shine out of darkness. That's why the coffee cup isn't good enough or the life preserver isn't good enough because we're in darkness, sheer total darkness. And what we need is the light of the glory of Christ to shine in on utter darkness. Things weren't great for us. It wasn't like, well, we still had a flashlight. None of that. It's complete darkness. And what we need is light to shine out. Just like the, what, what Paul is doing here is he's likening Genesis 1-1 when God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden out of darkness, there was creation. It's the exact same thing, but he's using our soul as the illustration here. When he says, let light shine out of darkness. Just like in creation, when God said, let there be light. God does the same thing on our soul. He creates ex nihilo. This is the, the way we understand creation. There was absolutely nothing. There was nothing. And then ex nihilo, this is the Latin for out of nothing. Then there was something. That's what's going on. When we become Christians, we're created new life ex nihilo. There's literally nothing in us that wants him. And then all of a sudden he yells and declares over us, let light shine out of darkness. And then ex nihilo, boom. What awakens us besides God to say, Jesus is more glorious than anything? There's nothing in us that wants him. Ex nihilo, we've been created to want to glory in Christ Jesus. There was nothing, and then God created creation out of everything. There was nothing in us that wanted God, and ex nihilo, boom, he made us 
to see and savor and desire his glory. I want you to please notice with me as we look at this, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. Just notice how powerless we are to save ourselves. Notice with me, who is the first cause of our salvation? God. Notice with me just how desperately needy we are for God to say, let light shine out of darkness. We are in utter despair without him to do this. Notice with me that our salvation is utterly dependent upon God in order for us to be saved. Notice finally, and this encapsulates all of what I've been saying in number one tune, it screams out so that we can primarily, the reason that he wants us to save us is so that we can see the glory of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus. And that's it. Notice what he says when he says, light shine out of darkness, shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He doesn't scream, let light shine out of darkness so they don't feel forgiveness, uh, uh, sin pains anymore. Let light shine out of darkness so that the wrath of God is removed. Let light shine out of darkness so they can finally go to heaven and not hell. That's not what he says. Let light shine out of darkness so that they can have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for us, is to see and experience Christ. So how does it happen? How does it happen? It happens because God calls us out of darkness. Our problem is blindness to glory, and the answer is God. The answer is God. He declares over us, come here and look. No more wandering. Come here and look. See glory. Come see glory. He calls our souls. Come see glory and finally be satisfied. Search no longer for um, temporal satisfactions in this world. Your wayward soul need pursue nothing any further. You finally found the person for which you were created. You were created, which is God. And God has done everything necessary for that to happen. Come Look at the glory of Christ. So how is the need met? The need is met this way. God. God, don't miss this, gives us God. That's how it's met. That's astounding. That's utterly astounding. Because there was nothing in us that wanted that. And not only does he give us just the secondary beneficiaries of the gospel, but he launches us right into the greatest news of the good news. Come, look. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. So the skeptic can say, okay, well, since God does everything, I don't need to do anything. Wrong, <laughs> right? Wrong. What's number four? What can you do? Here's what you can do. After you come to know Christ, it's still the same thing I've said for the last 12 years. Right? It's still the exact same thing. It's what we say at the very end of every service now. What can you do? Verse 5. It tells us exactly what we can do. God still depends on human agents to speak. So when, let's not miss this. When God declares towards the human heart, let light shine out of darkness. This is not audible, right? This is not audible. This is happening in the spiritual sense. But God is using something when he does that. Namely, you and me, in our meager presentations of the gospel whenever we tell somebody about Jesus Christ. So what can we do? Verse 5. For what, here it is, 
we proclaim. So we still proclaim. We still proclaim. Keruso proclaim. This is the word Keruso. To herald, to proclaim, or to publicly preach the gospel. This is what it is. Him we proclaim. Him we Keruso. We, we still have to Keruso. We are called by God to Keruso, to herald, to publicly proclaim the gospel. And this is how God has set up the calling of the blind of darkness into the light, is that he does it supernaturally and we do it physically. In other words, we physically Keruso, we speak the words of the gospel to someone. And when I say this word to you, God and the Holy Spirit comes behind that physical words with the supernatural power of him to come and save a heart so when i say trust in christ he died for you on the cross believe in him when i speak those words physically then the lord comes uh, supernaturally behind it and says let light shine out of darkness we don't hear that you hear me just saying trust in christ he died for you on the cross be forgiven repent of your sin but if i just do that and you don't get saved it's because god didn't come behind it and say let light shine out of darkness so here's the thing you and I have no clue when that's going to happen. We have no clue. So what do we do? As Spurgeon says, I just tell everyone. I just tell everyone. And then some people I tell, God won't say that to them. And some people I do, he will. So what do I do? We Russo. We proclaim the gospel to everybody we can. Come look at glory. And those whom God is saving the supernatural words behind him calls out to that person says, let light shine out of darkness to see the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And he saves them. Boom. Just like that, they're saved. And this is because a brave saint like you or I obeyed the command to Caruso. Maybe you won't say brave. Maybe you say obedient. Okay, fine. But nevertheless, the Lord uses brave and obedient saints when we Kerusa, when we proclaim, when we herald, preach publicly the gospel. He's set it up that way. Read Romans 10, 14 through 17. He's set it up that way that human agents are the ones that he uses through the public proclamation of the word to save souls. Of course, he could just do it without us. Of course. And sometimes he does, but that's not the norm. That's not the norm. The overwhelming norm is us that's amazing right isn't that unbelievable but that's the way it happens now this is literally what happened to uh paul when jesus saved him this is literally what happened to paul when jesus saved him if you're in acts chapter 26 i'm just gonna read it to you Paul is recounting how he was saved on the Damascus Road. He has several times in Acts where he does it. This is the third one. But this is what he says uh, whenever Jesus saved him. If you look at Acts chapter 26, starting at verse 16, notice the language Paul uses, starting at verse 16. Um, well, I'll go to verse 15. He goes, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen in me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending. Here it is. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
This is how Paul describes his own salvation and the ministry that he's been given by Jesus to go and preach the good news and let the Lord open the eyes of those whom he's going to open. That's literally what Jesus told Paul whenever he got saved. So what does this mean then? What does this mean? This is what it means. It means our hearts and our minds, if we are believers in Christ, can actually see the glory of Jesus in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. If you put all four and six together, our hearts, verse six, and our minds, verse four, can actually see, verse four, the glory of Jesus Christ, verse four and six, in the face of Jesus Christ, verse six, who is the image of God, verse four. If we put it all together, that's what it means. That our hearts and minds can actually see the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus, who is the image of God. Piper says, if you embrace everything about the facets of the gospel, but do it in a way that does not make the glory of God in Christ your supreme treasure, then you have not embraced the gospel. You have not embraced the gospel. So the final good of the gospel is not just forgiveness of sin, not going to hell, etc., but it is the personal presentation of Jesus himself to us in his glory. That's the final good of the gospel. And when that happens, we'll make statements like this in Hebrew, I'm sorry, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. So 17 paints a terrible picture, 18 paints an amazing picture. 17 is like, everything's bad. But, verse 18, here's verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there won't be any fruit on the vines, no produce in the olive, it all fails, all the fields yield no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, there's no herds in the stalls, there's nothing. Everything's going bad in life. But, or yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Will you say, along with the prophet, this, the greatest thing in life that I know is the glory of Jesus. It doesn't matter how my life is going, good or bad, the greatest thing for me is rejoicing and rejoicing alone that God has let me in on, rejoicing in the glory of the Lord. I have nothing else in the world. God might take it all, but I have the personal presentation to me in the face of, glo- of the glory of Jesus Christ, and yet that's all I need. He alone's all I have. He alone's all I need. I will rejoice I will take, jo- take joy in God alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you have saved us um, primarily to see and savor Jesus' glory. I thank you, God, that uh, in the gospel, you have called to our, our dark souls and let light shine in and given us the ability um, to now have eyes to see, to open them up to glory, and see Jesus Christ, to see his glory. So Lord, would you come uh, to us now, for those that don't know you, would you call them out of darkness? Would you, as verse 6 says, let light shine out of darkness and shine into their hearts and save them right now. Uh, If you're not a believer, repent from your sin and trust in Christ that he died on the cross for you. And for those of us here that are believers, help us remember daily and to preach this to ourselves daily. The greatest thing about being saved is that Jesus Christ has let us see his glory. 
This is the greatest thing there is. Help us every day glory in that. We love you, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.